I am really enjoying the Gospel of John. I've wanted to teach that book for a long, long, long time. And, of course, we were in Proverbs for a long, 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 long time. But uh, it's, it's always been one of my favorite books of the Bible. And last week, we, uh, I don't know how you're kind of cataloging all this, but we finished our fourth section of the first chapter of John. And remember, I told you that in the first chapter, verses 1 through 14 are really an opening prelude to the book. And so far, we have, we could probably break what we've looked at down into four key areas. First of all, we saw early on in a couple of first verses the declaration of God and His Word being one. That you cannot separate the Word of God from God. And that's not some mystical, magical, unseen, original manuscripts that never really existed uh, in a book form, but uh, the book that you have in your hand through a King James 1611 authorized version. Then we saw that God giving light to a dark world through that word. And then we saw that God sending a man to be a witness that through that man, uh, God would take his light and shine it unto others. And then last week, we saw how that God did get his true light to every man on earth. I I got so many, uh, you know, uh, uh, great responses to uh, helping that put a lot of things in perspective for people, how God does that around the world. And that's one of the major questions you're going to find when you start working with people through discipleship or whatever, just teaching them the Bible. They all want to ask that question and that just came up naturally, so we dealt with it. And we saw that, you know, that he does that because he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And how that God, all down through history, all down through the dispensations of time, and you know, most people think that dispensations is a period of time. Of course, it obviously is, but it's more than that. A dispensation in the Bible is not just a period of time, but it's a period of time when God is doing something different from what he did in the last dispensation or period of time. And uh, we know now from our Bible Institute that there's 11 or 12, depending on how you count them, uh, different dispensations that come Genesis chapter 1 up to Revelation chapter 22 and then, of course, out into eternity. And so God will reveal himself, we learned last week, through four ways to man. Obviously, the Word of God. And we talk about revealing himself, his glory. And his glory, God's glory, you want to remember this, God's glory is Jesus Christ. So when God reveals his glory to man, he'll do it one or multiple of four ways. One of them, the word of God. Two, Christ himself, when he came, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Old Testament, he did it through the nation of Israel. And the New Testament, he does it through the New Testament church. And then, of course, the fourth way was the Heavens declare the glory of God. Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day in the day out of his speech, night in the night showeth knowledge. And then it says in Psalm 33.6, By the word of the Lord, <clears throat> were the heavens made, and all of the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, where he spake, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood still. God will use those four things, or combinations of those, or all four of those, depending on what time period he is and who he's dealing with. And we saw that last week. And then I showed you probably one of the greatest rules of putting your Bible together, learning your Bible, and that is that when you look at the Bible, 
you don't look at it from a Christian standpoint. 20th century or New Testament Christianity, much too shallow. You got to step up, step back and look at it from the whole panoramic view of the Bible and what God's doing. Never look at anything from what your perspective is. You always want to get God's perspective on it. And that is so, so crucially important in in understanding your Bible. And today we see that in this dispensation of the church age for us, declaring our gospel, the grace of God, uh, we are to, as God's people, allow God's true light that is in us the day we get saved to shine uh, through us by what God is doing in our lives. And we talked about that at great length. And today, we're going to move into yet another section uh, with another key area to examine and to learn from. And I'm kind of breaking this first chapter down into sections so we can glean everything out of it that we need. I've already told you, the book of John is one of the five wisdom books in the New Testament. They're all written by John. And they line up and match to the five wisdom books in the Old Testament. So let's begin reading today in John chapter 1 and just three verses, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Well, four verses. Here we go. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you now and praise you for today. We ask your blessings upon all that we try to glean out of here. We love you. Thank you for the truth of your word and its power in our lives. We just pray, Father, you continue to use us. Uh, to help us to grow. We thank you for the uh, new six areas that we've opened up and how they're just flourishing. The lifeline is just over the top. The Timothy ministry is going great. The crafts, looking forward to Bible Institute this coming Saturday and and the discipleship and the principles, everything that God you've you've given us and just how good it is and how you're using those things in so many people's lives. So we love you. We thank you now and we pray your blessings upon all that we do for you today. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, each of these sections will obviously deal with the historical record of Christ's first coming. We know that. And uh, it's all dealing with Christ's coming, John the Baptist doing his gig, and uh, six months before Christ and manifesting him, Christ getting baptized, and then He's going to start his public ministry here uh, very quickly, and we'll, we'll start to work through that. And <clears throat> verse 10 says that he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. You know, when it comes to any book in the Bible, I, I obviously want to give you the historical. Uh, I always want to give you the doctrinal. Uh, but... I always want to focus on the practical spiritual side of things because that's really the key for, for your life and my life. Uh, you know, doctrinal stuff is great in putting your Bible together. Historical stuff is great of understanding how God is doing, what he's doing, where he's doing it. But in your everyday life, in my everyday life, the practical will always be uh, of a major importance to us. And I never try, I, I try never not to glean out of that and to give you something. And, uh, and for me, verse 10 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible that shows us our need as God's people 
uh, and certainly God's church, to be separated from the world. And it simply comes down, the reason why we are to do that in your Christian life and in my and our church is because the world does not know him. In the Bible, this is called the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is a big $25 word that simply means set apart. The day you got saved, God set you apart from the world. I've never understood. Well, I do, but it just boggles my mind today in the Laodicean church age that we have a a church that claims to be a born-again church with a pastor and people who claim to be saved. I just do not get you not understanding that we are to be separate from the world. I get it. The neo-evangelical crowd and the neo-orthodox crowd, that was their goal back in the 1900s when they started, to bring the world and the church together. I actually thought that some of you guys would be smarter than that. And it's a thing where it's, it, it, it's just a terrible thing today. The doctrine of sanctification is that the day you got saved, God separated you from the world. You know why? Because the world doesn't know Christ. And you trying to put your church or your life connected with the world, uh, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? It's not. And it's just a complete breakdown. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel was to stay separate from the other nations in a physical way. They couldn't marry them. They couldn't hang out with them. uh, They couldn't do anything with them. They had to stay under their own nation in a physical sense. In the church age, it's a spiritual thing and because uh, it's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. We're in a spiritual kingdom now, and we are to stay away from the world and everything that the world is. And, uh, you know, we always look at these verses, and it's, we have a tendency to think that they deal only with Christ's time. You know, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, and on earth and his rejection by the nation of Israel. And that is certainly true. At the first coming of Christ, they did that historically. But there's more here. And there's an application for you and for me that we can learn out of verse 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. And the Bible says in verse 11 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. In a national sense, That was his brother in the nation of Israel. We know that. But in a personal way, this will be his own personal family. Bible makes it clear in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Psalms chapter 69, verse 8, and John chapter 7, verse 5, that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. This idea from the Catholic Church that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, virgin, (laughs) virgin, a virgin is, is crazy. I mean, his brothers and sisters are listed in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. The Bible says that one of his brothers became an apostle, James, the brother of the Lord. But it also tells us that, that his brothers and sisters outside of James wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, these are his literal brothers and sisters. They, uh, and it boggles my mind. Can you imagine winding up at the great white throne judgment? knowing that you rejected God's son when you, he was part of your family, that he, he, he was your brother, or you were his sister, and you actually grew up with him? You were in the same household? Uh, you watched as you spitted and spatted like little kids do? You watched how he grew? And, you know, it, 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 it brings a great principle here. 
not everybody in your family is going to be satisfied and happy that you're doing what's right with the Lord. And the quicker you learn that, the quick better off you're going to be. Because Jesus himself faced the same issues that many of God's people have faced. I know in my many years in the ministry, I've dealt with it and seen it all the time. You know, uh, John chapter 7 verse 5 says, Neither did his brethren believe in him. His own sisters and brothers rejected him. You know, Psalm 69 talks about how that his brothers and his sisters are alienated uh, from, from, from the, my mother's children. And in Mark chapter 6 verse 3, it says that they were, it names them and says they were offended by him. And you know, and I want you to understand this because this is a great truth because some of you uh, have went through the same thing. Some of you are going through the same thing. Some of you will go through the same thing. You know, we talk a lot about rebellious children and not doing much right with the Lord. I probably don't spend enough time preaching on rebellious parents who don't do what's right by their children. And yet the parents, just like Jesus' kids, they get an attitude because they don't want to go to church. You know, there's some parents that they, I mean, you look back at their life, their families, they've been in every church in this city. And it's always, they go, they're there for a while and then something happens. And it's always somebody else's fault. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll jump from church to church to church to church, and it's always somebody else's fault, and they just never, never settle in. And all of my ministry over the years, I've had young men and young ladies who simply say, hey, I want God in my life, and I'm going to stay with the Bible, and I'm going to stay learning the Word of God, and I'm going to stay someplace that's teaching me the Bible, instead of the parents correcting their error of their ways and saying, yeah, you're right, we need to do it too. They don't. They just add to the labor on the child. I had a kid one time that he wanted to, this has been years ago, he wanted to come to church and his mom didn't want him to come to church because she was Catholic. So he said, well, I'm going to go to church, mom, because I want to learn the Bible. When she found out that he was tithing to the church, she made him also tithe to the Catholic church. And the kid did it. You know why? Because the kid had character. You know the why, why the mother did it that way? Because she didn't have any character. And you see it all the time. And I, I, I've said this many, 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 many times. You give me a kid like that, and I'll show you somebody that God's got something special for. You know, it's easy, and I, and I don't take away from your children. You, they've got good godly parents that are here this morning, and you do what's right with them, and you train them up right, and they're doing really well, and they're doing good. I, I take nothing away from that, and God has something special for them. But you know... And that's the way it should be. But you know that it doesn't work that way in the world that we live in. Many times kids have to come up and the worst opposition they face is their own parents because their own parents don't want to do what's right. And this is a great principle here. Here's the man Jesus, son of man, born into the family of Mary and Joseph. She has other kids after him. So he's obviously the oldest. And uh, they don't believe in him. And they get offended by him doing what God called him to do. And you're going to find it's the same way. So I'm biblical that, you know, that some kids, they just can't, they, they, they want the Bible. I, I, honestly, I wish that families would just all get on the same page and do what's right 
do what's right, parents in their own lives, do what's right with kids in their own lives and the kids do it, but it ain't going to happen. These are the issues in the ministry that you have to not only face, but you have to deal with. You can't ignore them. And many times you get clobbered for it because uh, parents are upset because the kids want to become a part of this spiritual family more than they do their own physical family. And you're going to pay the tab for that. And that's okay. You only have to pay it to the judgment seat of Christ, and then it'll be okay. Now, now looking back and, 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 and looking through the application of comparison here, we see that the Jews of Christ's day, his national brethren, we see that they had completely departed from the Word of God, both in their attitude toward God and their action toward God. And again, the parallels are overwhelming, how that they just match the pattern of God's people today in many cases. And they are really, the nation of Israel is as unrecognizable to what they were under David and Solomon as they are unrecognizable, the church today, as it was to the great Philadelphian church age or down through the true line of Christianity. Yet I want you to know that even though the nation of Israel does not know God, they're as far away from God as they could be. They still had all the window dressings. And this is another great lesson that you'll want to learn. Don't look at what people, don't look at what people portray on the outside. Because just as a nation of Israel, a lot of God's people put out the window dressing. You've got to see deeper than that. I mean, the nation of Israel, in their total apostasy to God, they still had the sacrifice. They still had the priesthood. They still had the scribes. And they still had the Old Testament law. But it's completely polluted, every aspect of it. And they have completely polluted themselves with the world system, which is the Roman Empire during this time. And uh, they, you know, they had become part of it. And they corrupted themselves. Micah, Micah chapter 2 verse 11 says that in Israel at this time, there's a spirit of falsehood. Nothing is real. Malachi chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 says that they're now having polluted bread and polluted sacrifices. And 2 Chronicles chapter 15 verse 3 says, For a long time now, the nation of Israel has been without a true God and a teaching priest. Total corruption. And on top of that, if you go back to 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you'll find that God sends them the prophets and the prophets are men sent by God to straighten the nation of Israel out, just like in the New Testament, God will send you preachers who still believe the book, who preach the book, they try to get you straightened out. And the Old Testament prophets nailed them with their preaching, just like the men of God who preaches today do uh, and, and will expose uh, us for who we really are and hold us accountable. But nothing really changed. They hated them just like they will hate you when you put the word of God out. The term, thus saith the Lord, is a powerful term in the Bible. Every prophet of God that was a true prophet before he said anything, and you want to mark these in your Bible, before he said anything to the nation of Israel in any shape or form, he always prefaced it with, thus saith the Lord. 
And in the Old Testament, when you don't find that, then you know the guy's not a prophet of God. But I'm telling you, thus saith the Lord was no more popular back then than it is today. And God's people just didn't care. You see, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says that they have a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. You know, they had married themselves to the world, just like the church has done today. In fact, it's so bad that the daughter-in-law of Phineas, back in, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, when she saw that the Philistines, who's a type of the world, had taken the ark, which is the type of Christ, and Israel loses the ark. You know what she does? She has a child, and you know what she named that child? Ichabod. Now, I know we all know the name Ichabod from Halloween coming up with the great story of Sleepy Hollow and, you know, Ichabod Crane who got chased by the headless horseman and, you know, and, uh, and, um, and all of that stuff. But Ichabod is, is a name that is a biblical name. And she gave that boy the name Ichabod because Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. And she saw that because they lost the ark, which is a type of Christ for you and for me, that the glory of God was in that ark had departed and, and it was a mess. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, and, and so will it be you know, it, it, so will it be. I mean, when you go to the first coming of Christ, here it comes, the first coming of Christ. And, and, and people ask me, why did you call this Operation Remnant? You know, this whole thing we put together. It's based on the Bible. Because you realize that the first coming of Christ, the only ones who recognized and knew who he was, was a small remnant. I mean, he's born in Bethlehem. Three guys show up. Three guys studied their Bible. Why? The whole world should have had, that had a Bible. Every Jew had the same information that these three guys had over here in the East, but they didn't bother. You know why? Because they didn't know him anymore. And out of the whole nation of Israel, just a remnant shows up for the first coming of Christ. You know what that tells me? I don't mean to belay your lack of intelligence, but you know what that tells me? At the second coming of Christ, there's only going to be a small remnant find out where he's coming. And that's just the way it is. You, you can't beat the book. That book lays it out, boy. You know, it, it's not that God's people don't like the Bible. They would love the Bible and like the Bible. It would just let you alone. But that book won't let you alone. That book will crawl off your cobby table while you're watching TV or while you're sleeping at night and get all over your face. Remember the early movies, The Aliens, which was always good, and that thing popped out of that big egg and got on your face and stuck something down inside you and, and hatched out something? That's what the Bible does to you. And you notice they didn't, you, you got to realize that, I mean, it's, that's all biblical stuff, man. You just got to put the dot together. I mean, here's this egg. It's got a seed in it. Hello? And it, the moment you walk into the room, it goes and opens up. But, you know, it doesn't get into your face till you walk over and you're, you're curious. Wow, that's, what wonder what that is. So what do you do? You walk over, wonder what that is. You walk over and you stick your face down into it. That's all he needs. <laughs> On your face. That's exactly what God did with you. You walked into the room today and it opened up. And now you're stuck here 
and you're looking into it, and it's going to get all over your face. Now, you know what the, the alien movie was. He put a seed in them, and then the aliens reproduced themselves through you. Well, that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to put the seed of the Word of God in you. Then he wants to reintroduce himself in you, except he ain't going to bust out of your chest. You see, that Bible says that he wants to be the true light in your life that gets to others. And when that, when that ark was gone, the glory was gone. And, you know, they had come to the place where the Philistines, the Philistines now had Jesus Christ, the ark. And they had all the window dressings of everything. If you'd have walked in there, but it wasn't real. And you go into churches today, and they got all the window dressing. They got pews. They got hymnals. Uh, they, got, uh, they got people sitting around with Bibles. They'll have music and all that stuff, but it isn't real. And when you look at the Laodicean church, right before the Lord comes back, it was a remnant it was a remnant who figured it out and was ready and looking for him. Now, I'm not saying all those people that we're talking about today in the church age, I'm not saying they're lost by any stretch of the matter, but what I'm saying is this, you don't know him. Because the Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now, I'm just going to tell you something here. The nation of Israel had taken the word of God and they added to it, just like we do. If you go into a Jewish tale today, you'd find they got the Talmud, they got the Torah, and they got the Midrash and several other books. Now, why do they need that? They need that so they can get out from under the prophecies in the Bible. You see, a priest doesn't teach from the Bible anymore. These are interpretations of the Bible. This is what he preached from. You know why they did that? Because they didn't want to, they had to get out from under the truth of who Jesus Christ was. They don't want to know him. You know why you get an ASV, an NIV, or whatever godless piece of trash you're using today? Same thing. You really don't want to know him because you can't know him through those books or those Bibles. And I apologize for even calling them Bibles. You see, their leaders had added now the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the mix, and they're not biblical. They're not found anywhere. There's nowhere God authorized that. But because they're doing their own thing, God intended the nation of Israel to be run through the scribes who had the custodianship of the word of God and the priesthood. And both the priesthood in the Old Testament and the scribes in the New Testament are transferred into the body of Christ, the New Testament church in the New Testament. But you know what they did? They forsook that just like we did. They come up with the Pharisees. They come up with the Sadducees, two non-biblical groups who ran it all and told everybody what the Bible said. We did the same thing with Bible scholars. We took the Word of God out of the common man in the church and put it into the universities and the Bible colleges and all seminaries, and now the Sadducees and the Pharisees of our day will tell you what the Bible means. Oh. And, I, and I'll tell you something up. When, by the time Christ shows up, the scribes had corrupted themselves. And by the time the priesthood had corrupted itself, and by the time Christ shows up, clearly they don't know him. They couldn't see who he was and be ready for him at the first coming of Christ, even though the Bible had just laid it completely out. 
And God's people today will no more see him and be ready for him at the second coming of Christ or the rapture of the church than they were back then. You know why? Because in both cases, we've corrupted ourselves. We don't know him. We have all the window dressings and all the pretty little fluff and all the stuff. And, you know, I mean, uh, but we really today in the Laodicean church, outside of a remnant, we don't know him. So it'll be like that today at the second coming of Christ. There'll only be a remnant. Brother, that book lays it out. It's no wonder so many people like Israel hate it. All the while they pretend to love it. You know, and I'll be honest with you, as a pastor or somebody who studies the Bible, how do you miss that? Did I lay anything out that was complicated this morning? Did I lay anything out that was hidden? It's just following your Bible. Well, maybe that's the answer. You don't have one. And, and looking at his time, first of all, his own brothers and sisters didn't know him, other than James. Judas, the one that portrayed him in Matthew 28, he didn't know him. The soldiers in Luke chapter 23 who put the nails in his hands and his feet, they didn't know him. The Roman government and the rulers of his day, Acts 4.27, they didn't know him. The religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priesthood, they didn't know it, Matthew chapter 12 and 13. And the whole world knew him not. And what does that tell me as a New Testament Christian? Stay away from the world in your own personal life, and in your church. And yet, may I just add this as a little postscript, just to agitate people a little bit farther. And yet there's a day coming when he'll return the favor at the great white throne judgment. The world says, I don't know him. I don't want to know him. And so there's a day coming when he'll stand there before the unsaved world and he'll say, I never knew you. You know, there's a saying we all use in the world that really comes out of the Bible. It says, it's that old saying, what goes around comes around. And there's no truer statement than that. The two of my favorite phrases is, is that one and then the other one that is not directly in the Bible, but it's taught in principle form is, is that if you sit by the river long enough, the body of your enemy will flow by. And that's why you just let God take care of those things. And it's an incredible Credible thing, knowing him. You know, I've always shown you the great truth long before we started this, that the book of John's gospel is about how to know him as your savior. So I told you when we started, 98 times you find the word believe and then the great chapter verse at the end that tells you that the reason the book was, was written to get you saved. And then I've also told you that he writes then the book of First John. And where in the Gospel of John, he shows you how to be saved. And in the book of 1 John, he shows you how to know him after you're saved through that fellowship. So 26 times in just five short chapters, you find to know him. I mean, how simple could it be? Now, putting all of this into a 20, 21st century spiritual application, and yes, I hate the 20, 21st century. We see the same thing that destroyed Israel also destroyed the church and New Testament Christianity, becoming one with the world and losing or forsaking the doctrine of sanctification. And, you know, the more you allow the world system into your church, into your family, 
into your own personal life, the less you'll know him, and then one day you'll wake up and not know him at all. You're still saved, but you just have lost touch with who he really is. And just like the Jews at the first coming of Christ, you're saved. But wow, you miss him. You know, just as fact as God has, God's people have was unpre- has been un- as unprepared for the for the epidemic, the pandemic, or the coronavirus that hit this world, and you wasn't ready for that, they won't be ready for the meeting at the rapture of the church. He will catch them totally by surprise. And today in 2020, I wish we could see that clearly, but we can't. And today, as we approach the end of the church age, which is rapidly coming our way, the gap between the world and Christianity should be 100 million miles wide. But instead, it's all now together. Like the Pergamus church back in 325 AD, which means much married. The church has been married to the world. And the real issue today for you and for me and for this church and for every church out there is just one little simple verse. Amos chapter 3, verse 3. How can two walk together except you be agreed? And you can't. God's people today are the greatest pretenders you'll ever encounter. Back in the 50s, I, on, my, on my couple of my Jeeps and my, my, uh, my, uh, my, my Ford Ranger, the radio doesn't work. And I like the 50s music, so I got me some 50 CDs, you know, you know that have the old 50 music on them. And one of them, is, I just play it over and over again. I don't know who did it, but it was back in the days in the 50s when I was just a kid. I've heard it all my life, but... It's a song called The Great Pretender. You older folks, you know that song? You do, don't you, honey? Huh? Want to come up and sing it with me? Oh, great Pretender. I'll do the hoo hoo hoo. You just sing it, okay? The Great Pretenders. And I got to confess, every time I listen to that, I think of some of God's people. I think of Christianity in general. I mean... We're supposed to believe the Bible. We're supposed to use the Bible. The Bible is supposed to be everything to us and our guide life. And yet you have a problem with somebody or somebody has a problem with you. Just try to sit down with them and open up the Bible and solve the problem. They ain't going to do it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to fix the problem. I mean, what, what could not be worked out between two of God's people with an open Bible? But they don't want to do it. I mean, they'll do it behind your back to somebody else, but never with an open Bible. Now, you know, I wonder why that is, and I'm going to tell you the answer, because you're a pretender. You're like the people that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where he said, Why call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Why would you claim to be a Christian and claim to be right in a situation, and yet you will not and you refuse to sit down with somebody, open the Bible, and solve the problem? answer, you're the great pretender. You're the great do-wah, do-wah, do-wah diddy. You're the great pretender. Ichabod. Don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. You ask me, what'd she say? You ain't telling me? We'll talk later. The great pretender. Ichabod. Ichabod. Not, over, not just over the church, but over you, God's people. 
And today there's no difference in, in churches and Christianity than the world. Bible says he came out in the world, knew him not. The Bible says he came unto his own and they received him not. You know, the book of Colossians is what I want to, I want to teach you at some point in time. And I, I, I love that book. And it's the definitive book on the latest in church age. Everybody thinks it's the book of Revelation. No, the book of Revelation is a filler material for the book of Colossians. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the word Laodicea is mentioned five times in the book of Colossians. So it's a book that, it's a great book to study in that sense. And the breakdown of the book is incredible because in chapter one, you find where he begins to redefine in every aspect. In chapter one of Colossians, he begins to redefine who Christ is. You know why that is? Because in the Laodicean church, we've lost who he is. We don't know him anymore. So that first chapter, he goes through and lays everything out of who Christ really is. And in chapter two, then he shows you the issues that we all face. It's all summed up in one verse. We'll look at it in a moment. Verse, uh, chapter two, verse eight. The issues that have destroyed the church today and destroyed Christianity. And then three and four is positive to me and you because in verse 3 and 4 he tells us as New Testament believers um, who believe what we read our response to the Laodicean church age. Incredible stuff. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 we see that what the issue is today is the same that Israel faced in John 1. It's the same that Israel faced in 606 B.C. He simply says, beware lest any man spoil you through number one, philosophy, and then number two, vain deceit, and then number three, after traditions of men, and then here it comes, number four, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You see, the church today of Laodicea is built on these four things, and the rudiments of the world. And let me be crystal clear. You can lose, without losing your salvation, you can lose what you have with Christ as far as your relationship with him, and it's so subtle that you don't even know it because it's a very slow process. Remember the old biology class when you used to have a frog and the biology teacher say, how do you boil a frog? Well, if you get the, if you get the water really hot and throw the frog in it, he jumps out. But if you put a frog in a, in a pan of water that's not heated, but you put it on the stove, put him in there, he's swimming around a little bit, and then you turn the heat up, it gradually gets hotter, and he doesn't realize it, and pretty soon you have delicious frog legs. He's dead. That's what the devil's done to the church. He didn't throw us in a pan of hot water. He put us in the water and then just turned the heat up slowly. And you wake up one morning and you don't know him. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven, but you have no clue about anything in the Bible. Everything in your world is upside down, yet you pretend it's all okay. You get mad at the church. Well, you get mad at the last church. You get mad at the last five churches. You get mad at the last ten churches. You're a pretender. Why don't people change? It's so subtle. And the greatest example of this, or the model of this, is found in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2, verses 43 and 47. And it says there that Jesus and his family, and his mom and dad, are going someplace tra- traveling. And the Bible says that they, 
they, they, they, they look around after, and they realize that he hasn't been with them for two days. And they're, 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 they went all this way. They've traveled this thing. And suddenly, I mean, uh, how do you do that? I mean, how do, you, how do you not know that one of your kids is not with you? I mean, I guess it happens if you're not paying attention. But I mean, there, I've been traveling for two days. Don't you think when they all went to bed at night, they thought, I wonder where he's at? Don't you think that he hadn't had a meal with them for two days? You might scratch your head and say, I wonder what happened to him. How can a family, that family, get so out of touch that they didn't even know for two days that he wasn't even with them? And then suddenly, at the end of the second day, somebody said, hey, I don't think he's with us anymore. And they went and found him, and they found him on the third day. Now, doctrinally, we know that that third day is a picture of the second coming of Christ, and it's a picture of the nation of Israel and and the church losing Christ for 2,000 years and then finding him on the third day, rapture church, second coming. But the point is incredible. It shows you that many of God's people today think they know him. They pretend they know him, but they lost him and didn't even know it. So subtle it was that you just let the world creep in. You didn't do what was right with the biblical principles that God gave you so it doesn't keep the world out. So just like water rising up in your basement on a floody rainstorm, the water seeps in, and pretty soon you wake up some morning, you don't even know him anymore. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. You see, I love those two verses. The first one says, he was in the world, and the world knew him not. The next one says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. See, the world never knew him, but his own brethren knew him. They just wouldn't receive him. God's people know him, but they won't receive him. There's the problem. You know who he is, but you reject and you do not receive what he has for you. And you do your own thing. And you let the world creep in and bang, some morning you wake up, don't know him. Hence, Laodicean church. Hence, the churches. I mean, I'll tell you, this. it says he came unto the world and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. They knew who he was. Just like God's people know who he is today. But the problem was they didn't receive what he did for them. And the closer you get to the world and you let it into your life or into your church, the less you'll know him as the fellowship and the walk. Light versus darkness. In his way, in his, in, his, in, his, in his light, there's no darkness at all. Churches today are just completely gone. I, you, we talk about the music all the time. The music is just, you could close your eyes, you could be in a nightclub. You could close your eyes and be at a rock concert. And the greatest question that I ask today is, what is the difference between the church today? Most churches social drink. Most churches have now have wine-tasting parties. There's a church here in town that, uh, that has a gambling ministry based on poker or whatever, poker your us or poker your eye out or whatever the case may be. 
they all get together on a night and set up four or five hundred poker tables and everybody plays poker. Of course, the winnings, who wins the money, has to donate it to a ministry. But then I'm told that they practice their little poker games at home where they drink their beer and they keep the winnings there. See, see once you open the door, where does it stop? And I, I just ask people, okay, you want to say that's okay? Oh, fine. You want to have a gambling ministry? That's fine. You want to have homosexuals come into your church? That's fine. You want to do this? You want to do that? You want to have drinking? That's fine. You want to have social drinking? That's fine. If you want to take the position, as long as you social drink, you know, and you don't become excess, it's okay. You know, if that's what you want to do, that's okay. Now, that would be hard to have a ministry for alcoholics. I had a lady one time that I knew for years and years and years, uh, and she goes to another church now, and she into that social drinking crowd, and she blatantly said, when they legalize marijuana, I'm going to be smoking it. And you know what? And I, 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 I'm not fighting it. I don't care. I just got one question. What are you separated from? Anything? You say, yeah, we're separated from your church. That's a good thing. (laughs) But honestly, what are you separated from? What are you separated from? And the answer is nothing. You know why? Because church today has married the world. And you cannot, how can two walk together except they be agreed? You cannot be part of the world system and walk with him. So you say, what are you saying? Well, I'm saying you're a pretender. I'm saying you're just like the nation of Israel. You got the window dressings. You got the big auditoriums. You got the big sound systems. You got lots of people that come. You, you, and you get up there and you give them whatever you give them. But at the end of the day, God is 100 million light years away. You know why? How can two walk together except they be agreed? And you can't go four verses in your Bible before God separated the light from the darkness. And you know what? In him is light and there's no darkness at all. And you can justify it any way you want. You can go to the verses and anything you want, but the bottom line is you're a pretender. You pretend to be separate from the world when you're not. And I'm just telling you right now, you can't live your Christian life that way. That's what's gotten so many of God's people in trouble. They think they can. They carry their King James Bible, the thing, they got all kinds of notes in it, but when push comes to shove, you don't go to it. When you got an issue with somebody, you don't follow it. When you've got personal problems in your own life or with your kids, you don't follow it. We're pretenders. And this is the state of the body of Christ in the 20, 21st century. You know, it's a thing where worldly preaching with worldly music, with a worldly lifestyle, duh, will produce worldly Christians. Then he says in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to believe on his name. To them gave he the power. You know, I've said it many, many times. Another thing that we don't know is when you get saved, the power that you have inside of you. The power we have as God's man or God's woman. And we have, you know, I quoted a little while ago, Psalms 33, 6 and Psalms 19, 1. Bible says in 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all of the host in them by the breath of his mouth. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. You know how much power that is that God just spoke the whole creation into being? 
Now, let me just tell you this. Do you know you have the same power that he did now with inside you today? You do. And the problem is you don't know him, so you don't know the power. See? I mean, it's just that simple. Learning how to control and use that power correctly that God, and even recognize it. You know, your car is a combustible engine car. A combustible engine means that it, it's combustible. You put fuel in it, the fuel gets ignited, and then it's all kept within that cylinder block, and it, it fires the engine up, and it runs. Enjoy it. The government's going to make you buy an electric car. Sooner or later, they're going to do away with the combustible because they're worried about air quality. They're worried about, you know, the green stuff, you know, the trees and ozone layer, you know that? I mean, I got news for you. The Lord's going to fix all that. But you're going to lose your combustible engine, you know, so buy them while you can. Keep them as good as you can because sooner or later they're all going to be gone and you're going to have to plug it in every night. And uh, you know what? I just, it's, it's crazy, but that's where it's going. But right now you have a combustible engine, and it runs on gasoline. Now, I know, I know. You think that, because we talk about a gas well, we talk, you think that gas just, you know, octane gas just comes up out of the ground. No, it doesn't. You know, what they do is they dig an oil well, and they dig the oil, and they get the oil out. It's called crude oil. And then what they got to do to make the finished product to make your car run is you got to send it to a refinery. And in a refinery, they got these big tanks and they refine it and bring it down. And what comes out the other end is gasoline that makes your car run, that makes everything go the way it needs to be. But that crude oil to being translated into the power to run your car has to go through a refining process. It's called a refinery. And I'm telling you, when you get saved, you have the power of God, but it's all in the crudest form you could ever imagine. You know what he has to do? He has to put you into a Bible-believing church with a Bible-believing pastor with other Bible-believing people who will help the process of taking the crude stuff and refining you into the power of God to make your engine run. This church is a refinery. You come in here... Some of you are very crude, very, very, got to rock off the rough edges. Uh, everybody's got issues they got to work through. And this church is like the refinery. It refines you. It, not, it takes the principles of the Word of God and it molds you and makes you and refines you into what God, the finished product. And through that process, you come out on the other side as gasoline, which runs an engine, which is a power supply for a combustible engine. God wants to take every one of you and refine you to the point where he can reveal that power and more importantly, you learn how to use it. That's just how it works. And you know, it's a thing where, look at Philippians, turn over to Philippians chapter three. And I I get some of you must hate the book of Philippians by now. We have been going through that thing and it's just been beating us senseless. Uh, I mean, it just, but you know why? Because it's a church that doesn't have any pretenders in it. And Christians who like to pretend will never like a book where there are no pretenders. In 1 Corinthians, you got pretenders. In Thessalonica, you got pretenders. In Romans, you got pretenders. In Peter, you got pretenders. 
All through Paul's books, you've got pretenders. In, in Colossians, pretenders. In Ephesians, pretenders. But when you get to Philippians, there are no pretenders. And it's a thing where a real church filled with real Christians. That's why you find those 10 incredible verses. And this is one of them. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, there's three areas here uh, that you look at in understanding God's power. The first thing it says is that I may know him. Really? Do you know him? Really? You say, well, yeah, I'm saved. I know you know him as your Savior. But, oh, boy, here it comes. Do you really know him? You want to see the next two steps? That I may know him. The power of his resurrection. Now, that's salvation. When you got saved, you got the power that came through the resurrection of him coming up from the dead. So, that I may know him. And there's three areas to this. Power of his resurrection. Oh, boy, here it comes. Fellowship of his suffering. Then three, being made conformable unto his death. Now, that verse, as it stands alone, will separate the men from the boys right on the spot. Now, watch the pretenders. Let's back into it. Now, the end result for all of us will be conformed to the death of his son. And you may not know what that means. That that means that you become, through the life that God gives you, through the light that God gives you, you now become dead. Dead to the things of the world. Dead to the things of self. Dead to what people say about you. Dead to what people think about you. When you know that you're doing what God's called you to do. Dead to sin. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, that you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, this little thing that just, you know, the little things that upset so many of God's people. I mean, people get upset because of little stupid things. You know, most people who leave churches and they have a major issue that they've made up in their minds, if it, and sometimes they're, they're right, but they, 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 when they're not right, the, the fake things, that the pretend things that they have, you know where it all started? It all started by not taking care of the little things. And when you don't take care of the little things in your life, the, you know, then the big things are going to reign over your life at some point. And, it, and it's a thing where, you know, you see that. You know, uh, you, you, you don't, you get an attitude toward people. You get an attitude that you like this person, you don't like that person. Say people. You know, well, I don't like this. I didn't get invited to this. Well, I didn't get this. Or so-and-so got to do this. And why didn't I get to do this? You know, you just, you just, God's people today get so upset over the stupidest stuff that in the big picture of what God's doing doesn't mean anything. And you know why? Because you never learned that the end result of your life is to be conformed to his death. Now, give you an example. You've all been to funerals. I've done my share of them. And you go into the funeral and things change now today. You know, they, they don't bury people as much as they used to. There's no caskets, no viewing. 
you know, you have a little jar of ashes there for the person. Sometimes a person dies and, you know, it's months later that they, you know, they have them cremated and you have a servant. Nothing wrong with any of that. But I'm just saying, in the old days, when you died, you got embalmed and you got put in a casket. And I've been many of them, been to many of them, <coughs> preached many of them, and they're all the same. Before you get into the service, people get to go up and do the viewing. They call it a wake. I don't know why they call it a wake, because the guy never does wake. He stays dead, but they call it a wake. And uh, back in the old days, you used to have them in your home. You know that? They used to bring the body and the casket in there, and people come into your house. and they, you know, But they all do the same thing. They walk up there, and they say, He really looks good. <laughs> Next person. Boy, he doesn't look like himself. Boy, he lost a lot of weight. You know, I always said, he had the biggest nose you could ever see in your life. <laughs> hey, Sharon, remember mom years ago, her favorite saying was when she see a guy with a big nose? I wish I had that nose full of nickels. <laughs> remember that? Up and say, you know what? Boy, she was ugly in life and she is ugly in death. Somebody else goes up and he says, Well, you got what you deserve, you. <laughs> Somebody else comes and says, You, boy, I tell you what, I never liked you. You, you know, I tell you what, I'm glad you're dead. Yeah, yeah, plenty of people say that about me when they're dead. But anyway, and you know what the great key is? None of that matters to the guy. You know why? He's dead. You can tell him how ugly he was, how rotten he was, how big a nose he's got. You can tell him, you know, you can say anything you want to say about him and it does not affect him. You know why? He's dead. And I'm going to tell you something. When you ever get to the place in your life that you become conformed to his death, then what people say about you will never matter because you're a dead man. Doesn't get to you. It may get into your head, but you never let it get into your heart. You know why? Because I'm dead. I mean, that's, that's the end result for all of us. Why, why, why can't we do that? Why are we so fickle about the little things in life that really doesn't matter? Well, I don't like that person. You think, what would you like if God was up in heaven looking at you and said, well, I don't like her. Well, I don't like him. You see, when you're dead, the things that people, when you're doing what God's called you to do, when you're dead, whatever people think, could people get jealous? People get, people get jealous of what you're doing that they don't get to do. People get their nose bent on the joint because they don't get invited to something that you did, you do. People get their, all kinds of petty stuff. And if you don't think the devil don't get in those details, I guarantee you he does. And that's why the Bible says the end result for every one of us is to be conformed unto his death. You're a dead man. You're a dead woman. Somebody says, well, you know, um, you're dead, man. I'm dead to those things. I'm dead to the world. I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ in God. And most importantly, oh, you're dead to the things of this old world. Now, you get the power of God at salvation. And the end goal is to be like him and be conformed to his death. Now, there's two key words in the Bible in your Christian life. One of them in, one of them in Romans and the other one here. 
And in Romans chapter 12, it says that we are to be transformed. That's salvation. The day you got saved, God transformed you. But then the second word is found here, and it is the word conformed. You see, once God transforms you, then he has the ability to conform you. And transformation, or your transforming, is when you got saved. That's John. But your conforming, that's the work and the fellowship and your walk with him, First John, and learning to know him. You don't want to forget that. Dead to the world. Somebody said, you know, hey, how'd you sleep last night? Oh, man, I was dead to the world. Every Christian ought to say that when they ask you, how's the world doing you? But the only way you'll do that is through fellowship. Book of 1 John. And uh, I'm not talking about fellowship at Culver's or Jason's Deli. I'm talking about the fellowship of his suffering. You see, we all want the power of God, but we don't want the suffering of God. But the power of God only gets defined and refined in your life through the suffering. You know how you make a diamond? You take a piece of coal. And then for maybe a million years, you put that coal under 100 million tons of pressure. And after a long period of time and all the pressure, you open it back up and there's a diamond. You know how God makes diamonds out of you, lumps of coal? And how God takes you as an old, dirty piece of crude lump of coal and in time processes you and refines you into a diamond through pressure. He doesn't make you by everybody telling you how great you are. He doesn't make you by you having all the good things in life. He makes you through the fellowship of your suffering of what you go through for him and through that refining process makes you into a diamond fit for the master's use. You know, I, I, I don't know that this is true, but I, I like to think it's true. When we get to heaven, we get married to the Lord and we have a marriage supper to the Lord. I know that wedding rings are not biblical in the Bible. I know that they come in with Constantine and all that stuff, but I would like to think that if the Lord as his bride, gives me a diamond ring. It wouldn't be a diamond ring with a lump of coal in it. It would symbolize the refining process in your life and my life of the fellowship of his suffering. Yet the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it is a faithful saying, for if we are dead with him, we shall also live with him if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him the suffering, he will also deny us. He doesn't know you as far as the suffering. And when we get out of a church that is separated from the world, which is God's accountability structure for you, the first thing you lose is your walk with God and then the hand of God in your life and then the book goes and then the things of this world will just begin to creep back in. And in time, you'll know him not as to the fellowship of his sufferings. And when tough times come into your life, you'll be hiding under a rock. When you get cancer or you get some deliberating disease, 
you'll be scared to death of it. When the pandemic hits, you'll be scared to death of it. When all the things in your world go crashing down around you, you'll fear those things more than you fear the suffering with him. And then you get comfortable. And you know, when we get comfortable, because this is true, the older you get, Penny will tell you this, she's 70 this week. (laughs) The older we get, the less we like to be moved out of our comfort zone. See, you young kids, you don't mind. You'll, you'll roll with the punches. But you get to be 70 years old, 80 years old, you don't like change. I mean, you don't want to get up and walk the dog. You don't want to get up and walk because it, it hurts too bad to get out of the chair. You don't like things coming in your world. You like it nice and easy, don't you? You like getting up in the morning and just smooth sailing through life. And then when the waves start rolling, you don't like it. You can never make it in a ministry that way because the, the ministry is too tumultuous. I'm not sure what that word means, but I think it means complicated. It's a thing where you're always, you just can't get comfortable because when you get comfortable, then you begin to coast. And then the little stupid things bother you. The little people. People will annoy you. There's no question about it. People annoy you. You say, how do you deal with people who annoy you? Oh, I just think of how many times I must have annoyed God. You see, we get so self-righteous in ourselves. We think that we're so perfect with God that we've never annoyed him, that we've never done something stupid, that we never made a bad decision. And that's because we're not going through this fellowship of his suffering. And you get coasting. You just kind of move through life like, you know what? I'm just coasting through this thing. And you get comfortable. And little stupid things now bug you. And very slowly, like the frog in a pan of water, all these four things that are Colossians 2 begin to move back in. And pretty soon, the rudiments of the world are right in your life. And you've lost your fellowship of suffering with him. And you don't even know it. And now you are, with the King James Bible, a church that you either go to or another church that you don't go to, Now you are the great pretender. Then lastly, there's a great verse here on salvation itself. It says, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This salvation that the gospel of John has for man, uh, that is the true light that can only come through God himself, his son, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We know now you can't separate God in a book. It doesn't come by man. doesn't come through your family. doesn't come through any religion. And it certainly doesn't come through yourself. Only through God's whose, whose salvation uh, comes through his Son. And then one of the greatest verses... In the Bible, in 1 John 5, verses 11, 12, and 13, it says, and this is the record, God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You see, that's two of the greatest verses in the Bible. It says either you have him or you don't. And it has to come through his Son. If you have him, you have life, and if you don't have him, you don't have life. Then he says this, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He's given you a record. 
And that record is for you and I to know for sure that you're saved. But you know why? Because there's times that you're going to have to put it all on the line for him. And if you ain't sure he's got your back, you're not going to do it. There'll be times that your life may be called into question of what you've got to do. And if you're not sure your salvation and he's got your back, you'll never do it. And if you don't know that you're saved and you have that book and the only way you know that is the power of his uh, resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and then being conformed unto his death, the process of being conformed after you're transformed, you'll never do it. Now, in the first four verses of Genesis chapter 1, God divides the light from the darkness. We know that. And that's the first mention of separation in the Bible. And from that point on, God separated everything that he was from everything the world was. And it works down through the Old Testament, and then it works into the New Testament. It works into the church age, into God's people, God's church. And we're to be different than the world. You know, the world today that is popular is an alternative lifestyle. That used to be a term back in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s for a Christian. Now it's a term for the gay and the lesbians. And God's people are just like the world. There's no difference. We've lost the definition of an eternal lifestyle to the world because we are the world, and now the sinners of this world have their own eternal lifestyle. And John chapter 1, verse 10 is the first verse in the New Testament that tells us that Christianity in the world has no place together. And we close out the church age as we close it out right now where we're at. We see at the rapture and the second coming that Christianity and Christians are in the same mess that Israel was at the first coming, uh, first coming of Christ. They didn't have a clue of who he really was. They were pretending, just like the church is pretending today. They were pretending, had everything there. They had a form of godliness, but they're pretending because they didn't have the power. And God's people have the big churches, the big buildings, the steeples, the choirs, the, everything they've got, but they're pretending. Thursday night, one of the greatest questions and greatest insights into the judgment seat of Christ that anybody would ever probably see was, laid out when somebody, when, when they asked a question about the two verses, you know, uh, about bowing your knee and your tongue confessing. And of course, there's two aspects to that, the bowing of your knee, that is your lifestyle. That is you ceasing to go with the world and uh, you're bowing your knee. You walk with your legs. Now you're on your knees. You're going to go through life on your knees and the other one is the confession of the mouth. That's what you're going to say that comes out of your mouth now that you're on your knees and have given your life to God and made him Lord of all. And as the old song says or the old saying says, if he isn't Lord of all, then he ain't Lord at all. And you're pretending. And the book of Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And the question was the discrepancy between Philippians 2.10 and Romans chapter 14.11, which both verses are dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. And in Philippians 2.10, it says that every, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
And Romans chapter 14, 11 says, for it is written, every knee shall bow. And he wanted to know the difference between why it would say should bow and then says shall, shall bow. And I, I laid it out. And I'll be honest with you, I had never seen it before. It just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And boy, I went home that night and got it into my Bible. I preached that concept many times, but I never saw a really good example. And there it is. You see, right now in your knowing him, your knees should bow to him in your walk. And you should make him Lord of your life. You should not be the great pretender. You ought to be the real deal. But most of God's people are not going to do that. They're going to pretend. In the church age that we live in and the way it is, we don't do that. We're pretenders. So most of God's people pretend and they won't really do it. But, so he says, Philippians 2.10, that every name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But then there's coming a day when Romans 14.10, the judgment seat of Christ, where you will bow. Because there it says, for it is written, every knee shall bow. You see, it's not a question of whether you'll bow your knee to him or not. The question is simply when you'll do it. You'll either do it now in a relationship with him because you love him and he loves you and you walk with him and you know him and you understand that knowing him and the world can't be together, so you separate yourself from the world and you bow your knee to him now and make him Lord of your life, and then the things that come out of your mouth or the things that confess what he's doing in your world, or you'll be a pretender. You'll go through your life, your Christian life, church to church to church, problem to problem to problem. You'll have every downside of thing in this thing and you'll just keep going your own way and pretending, pretending and everything in your life that's down will always be somebody else's fault. And where right now you should bow and you won't, when you stand before him, you will bow. You either accept him now under a God of love and grace and give, bow your knee and confess to him now or you'll do it in that day when the reality sets in that you were a pretender. It's not a matter of whether you will or whether you won't, folks. It's just a matter of when you will. You'll either do it now or you'll do it there. My advice to you is to do it now. Reap the blessings. Reap the warmth of your family. Reap the blessings of doing what's right in your life and separating yourself from the world. Whether you're a Christian listening to this or a pastor in your church, separate yourself from the world. Don't pretend you can have both. Because of the day coming, if you don't do it now, you'll do it then. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be the great reckoning of everything in your life and my life. And uh, it's going to be very clear at that point who were the pretenders and who were not. It's already clear. But in that day, you will bow your knee and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I guarantee you, I bet at the judgment seat of Christ, without a doubt, there'll be millions and millions and millions of God's people out of the Laodicean church age that'll beg God for just to go back in time for just five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 seconds to do what they should have done in life, but they didn't. And you will not go back. When it's done, it's done. And that Bible says that that I may know him, power of his resurrection, through the fellowship of his suffering. And then God conforms you under the death 
not the person, not Christ-like like the other principles. This one, you're conformed to his death. And a dead man goes through life not letting anything bother him because in his life from God, he's become dead to the world and people who live like the world. Well, we'll hold up there.